Hi everyone, my name is Azilia. And I'm Iqbal. And this is the He Says. <laughs> she Says. <laughs> they say podcast! to this episode of the He Says, She Says, They Say podcast. I'm your host, Azilia, here with Iqbal, and our guest of the day, Dr. Ku Yoon Kin, Managing Editor of the Malaysian Medical Gazette and Healthcare Administrator in Singapore. Welcome to our show, Doc. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me, Iqbal and Azilia. Nice to meet you guys. <laughs> nice to meet you too, virtually. <laughs> yeah, everything is virtual these days, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So how do you, like, are you working from home, from the hospital you got? Like, if, like, can you do surgery from home? Is that how that works? No man, everything is on site this day. <laughs> is any part of your job like workable from home? Actually, there are some parts that are workable. I mean, if you look at administrative stuff, you still can do it at home. But the problem is um, there's a lot of sensitive data, the patient's data, hospital data, uh, blah, blah, blah. So preferably, they would like us to be there because we have to access different health systems. And most of it are contained within the local area network. Right. Yeah. Oh. Cool. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Alright, so doctor, as you might know, we invited you on the show today because Malaysia has rolled out its first doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to opt-in participants this week. Now, thousands of people have signed up and showed up for what is now being unofficially or semi-officially referred to as the Twitch my ass vaccination drive. <laughs> yeah. Really good hashtag, by the way. Whoever came up with that it was really good. Real quick, before we begin, Dr. Ko, can you maybe give us a brief overview of the vaccination efforts that are taking place right now in Malaysia? Like, from your perspective, how is the country doing so far? And where are we relative to neighboring countries or other developing nations with regards to the vaccine rollout? Right, I think it's very hard to compare because obviously each country has different health systems, health uh, demographic and all. Mm -hmm. But overall, I think it's great that we managed to start it even early this year. Mm -hmm. There's still many countries in, say, Africa, you know, mm -hmm. that still barely started their vaccination programs and they have been suffering quite badly from the disease. But of course, if you compare to richer nations, you know, US, UK, Canada or the European countries, they have all started much earlier. Yeah. And of course, due to purchasing power, political power, they have obviously managed to do it much faster than us. I think overall, we will be affected from the supply constraints, from the political stuff that's going on with vaccines and all. Hopefully, we can upscale it. We have just finished phase one for the medical frontliners and also supposedly high-value people, like, but I won't say who. Mm -hmm. We have also started phase two recently, the high-risk population. Surprisingly, KKM or MOSTI or JKJV, whatever all these acronyms, decided to roll out first-come, first-serve for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Right. There are probably a few different tracks going on. Hopefully, as we go along, we'll be able to pick it up in a much faster rate. Sure. Why is the AstraZeneca vaccine specifically on a first-come, first-serve basis? I can give you an educated guess about it. The AstraZeneca stock, at least for this first batch that came through recently, is from COVAX. Mm. COVAX is this initiative by WHO and other global agencies to bring vaccines to lower to middle-income countries. Mm -hmm. I believe the COVAX stock 
has no return policy because most of the other purchasing agreements they have this clause saying that if it's not approved you can return it you don't have to pay for it but I think the COVAX is like a allocated basis where you just pay or you just join COVAX then they will just allocate different stocks to different countries hmm. so I would assume there will be no such return clauses for the AstraZeneca vaccine so that's one thing second thing I think there's also a lot of talk about the potential risk of having blood clots that have probably played into some vaccine hesitancy among groups. You know, some people are just more concerned about it. Mm. So I think according to some data given by the minister, yeah. um, there was a pre-registration from the mainstream system, about 8,000, I think. Oh, yeah, wow. so, yeah, so they said that was because of the vaccine hesitancy from AstraZeneca. So that's probably why they took it up from the ministry program. Real quickly, doctor. So, for example, when we talk about AstraZeneca and the fears around the health concerns or like the side effects when your concerns can, mm-hmm. the rate of incidences of those blood clots or much um, those negative effects from the vaccine have been astronomically low. Yeah. Like point percent, 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 percent. Kalau tak silap kan, doctor? Yes. I think the data in the UK suggests it's about nine in a million. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is what? Someone do quick maths. <laughs> <laughs> 9 out of 1 million is literally 0.000009% chance. And I don't know, the death rate from COVID is what? Depends on country, probably ranging from about 0.4 to 1 point something or 2%. Which is way higher yeah. than 0.00009%. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I don't know, even just comparing those two numbers side by side, how can there be any reasonable conflation between the risk of getting COVID and then making that same as the risk of getting any bad effects from a vaccine? Yeah, yeah. I think the way the public way risk is a little bit different. If we look at vaccine versus COVID, of course, the logical thing to compare is not just the risk of the vaccine. You, know, you always have to compare the risk and the benefits of the vaccine versus mm-hmm. the risk of getting COVID and also the complications of COVID, which is obviously death itself. Right. But for us, I think most of us weigh risk as in to we actively participate in the risk. So I think getting the vaccine is an active act on the part of the person. So you know, yeah. naturally, you want to be in control of the risk. Right. So naturally, again, you want to reduce the risk as much as possible. Obviously, zero is the best. Yeah. So, Yung Kian, you've led us very nicely into the part of the discussion that I wanted to get into. When we talk about people with fears about vaccines, Yunkian, people with vaccine hesitancy, are they generally the same thing as someone who's an anti-vaxxer? Like, what do we mean when we say anti-vaxxer? Are they anyone who has any kind of vaccine hesitancy? Or are we talking about a very specific kind of people with very specific attitudes towards vaccines? Yeah, I think before we can look into how to define anti-vaccination or you know, vaccine hesitancy, I think we must understand that it's actually a spectrum. It's not like a either or. Okay. Um, you start off maybe with some concern, maybe just a valid concern. Right. Um, then maybe as you read more, you get the wrong information. You start to get a bit hesitant about it. 
then of course the idea or the notion gets fixed in your head. Yeah. So once you get that in your head, you just progress on deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole until you finally became a vaccine denier, I would call it. Mm. So it's actually a spectrum. There are a few categories of reasons of anti-vaccination. Right. In that local study, you know, one of the mother's reasons parents gave why they didn't bring their child for vaccination is simply because they forgot mm. or they didn't have time mm. or you know, they couldn't access healthcare. You know? So these are not through anti-vaccination groups. They are just victims of circumstances. You know, maybe they truly forgot because of work, they couldn't take time off, they were sick, you know, things like that. Many people think that once you have reached the end, probably a bit hard to change your mind. Um, so part of the focus is actually on the early part. It's probably on the concern or maybe the hesitant group, hmm. which has the most potential to change their mind about their views on vaccine. Right. And so this spectrum of people they didn't just pop up around COVID. They've been around for a while, but can can you share a bit more about what you know about these group of people? Like, how did they even come about? Are they only a product of recent history or have they existed for as long as the medical profession has existed? I think the spectrum of people has been around for some time. I mean, if you just look at concerns, everybody has legit medical concerns, whether or not yeah. it's medication you're taking, whether or not you're seeing the correct doctor, whether or not you're, you're doing the correct surgery. You know, those are all valid concerns. Um, so I think it applies the same to vaccines, even way back before vaccines are popular around the world. Mm. So to say that they are only very recent would be not very accurate. But I believe in the recent years, it has probably grown more prominent. If you look at the famous example, it's obviously Andrew Wakefield, a British doctor who somehow decided to publish a paper that proposed a link between autism and the triple vaccine, either uh, mumps and rubella vaccine. Hmm. His paper, if I'm not mistaken, was published in 1998. Yeah. So eventually, the theory got debunked after many, many years. So the Lancet actually only retracted the paper only in 2010. Wow. So that was 12 years for the movement of the idea to have it around the people. Yeah. So, I mean, eventually, even though he was debunked, he was stripped of his medical license in the UK, he moved to the US and still went on promoting or encouraging views on anti-vaccine hmm. and doing medical research. And as you know, the US has a very big group of vaccine deniers. They are not just pockets of people around the population, they are actually organized groups. I mean, if you look at US alone, it has somehow morphed into this right-wing ideology. Mm. I wouldn't say that they are right-wing people, but somehow it has latched on on the political agenda of some as well. So, you know, they use the political platform to further their view. Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, it's spread like a wildfire. When we look at diseases that have been successfully eradicated by vaccines, like you mentioned, the Andrew Wakefield study in the 90s, and since then, contemporary anti-vaccine discourse took off in the early 2000s, we could say. Mm-hmm. Yep. During that time, a bunch of vaccine-preventable diseases have made significant comebacks. For example, the number of measles cases grew by 900% in Malaysia between 2013 and 2018. And then, of course, we've had diseases that have been previously eradicated by vaccines, mm-hmm. like smallpox, starting to make a comeback. So if you look at the numbers of these, if you look at the statistics of these, and then try and make assumptions about what might be the reasons for them. I guess my real question is, apa sebenarnya masalah anti-vaxxer ni? Diorang tak nampak ke benda-benda ni? <laughs> so pissed. <laughs> so pissed off. Tolong jawab sikit, doktor. Apa masalah anti-vaxxer ni? 
Apa masalah saudara-saudara ni? <laughs> okay. That is quite a hard question to answer. But I think in Malaysia, if you look like you rightly said, there's an increase in measles incidents. And recently, I think there was a small outbreak of polio as well in Sabah. Mm. There was a study done a couple of years ago that looked at what the reasons Malaysians are afraid or hesitant about vaccines. Mm. So I think if you look at most of the reasons, it's mostly things like personal health belief. You know, there's lack of trust or confidence in medicine or even the healthcare worker itself. Huh. Obviously, there are also conspiracy theories about pharma companies trying to sell the vaccines or the medicine. Mm. You know, over a couple of years, there's this uptick in organic everything, basically, you know, using a natural approach, homeopathy and all those sorts of rubbish, you know. <laughs> so that as well has played a part in the vaccine hesitancy. Mm. And of course, the religious beliefs, whether or not they are true, also fuel the movement, I guess. Right. I just wanted to ask, we are aware that there is a rise of the anti-vaxxers movement that stems in part from a general lack of understanding of how vaccines work. And we hear a lot of conspiracies about how the vaccines might alter their DNA, and some even see vaccination as part of a diabolical plot by the deep state to enslave humanity. So can we just try to understand why respectable men and women surrender to this kind of unreal thinking? I suppose conspiracy theories about healthcare, etc. in the US is obviously quite influential as well. I mean, if you look historically, we don't even have to look at conspiracy theory. Yeah? You all know the Tuskegee experiment. Mm-hmm. I do, but maybe you want to just explain that for the benefit of our audience. All right. I think in the 1970s in the US, they wanted to recruit patients from the African-American community to observe how the progress of syphilis in the community. The recruitment process was to actually say that by the end of the process, they will be given free health care, but I think they never did. Mm. In the initial agreement, it was for a few months, six months, I think, that we actually went on without their knowledge for close to probably 20 to 30 years. So there's a lot of distrust among the African-American community there. So yeah. if we break up the part of the population of vaccine hesitance or deniers, you know, uh-huh. always say that there is some racial discrimination among the minorities there. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it in that angle, you can't actually blame them because they have developed a distrust over the years. Mm-hmm. Right. I see. So we can't put a blanket perception on vaccine deniers or hesitant people, I think. Right. So it's interesting that you bring up that point because there have been studies done to identify the rates of vaccine hesitancy among different income groups, different ethnic groups, geographical locations in the US. And one of the findings was generally that in areas where people tended to speak non-English language at home, so in other words, non-white areas tended to be less vaccine-hesitant compared to areas which had higher rates of white people living there. And so, I don't know, so you're right, there is a point to be made about the historic fears that minority groups have had to endure in the United States, but somehow that hasn't led to higher rates of vaccine hesitancy among the groups yang sepatutnya lebih takut. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Which is interesting. So this was in Texas that the study was done by the University of Texas in Austin. They found that areas with more white people tended to be more vaccine hesitant. They also found correlations between higher income urban areas with vaccine hesitancy 
people with bachelor's degrees, college-educated people were more likely to be vaccine-hesitant compared to areas young had lower median incomes. And I guess there's this perception that anti-vaxxers are conservative, uneducated people who live in the kampong, but a lot of data seems to suggest that people who are more vaccine-hesitant tend to be more educated, more well-to-do, and more urban. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I agree with you. I think part of it is because modern medicine always uses the term evidence-based medicine. Uh-huh. And, you know, we always weigh the pros and cons of each treatment, of each vaccine, of each medication. Yeah. So nobody's going to tell you, you do this surgery, you will have 100% curative rate of it. They were going to tell you the curative rate is probably 90%, but you still have 10% chance of certain complications. So we tell this to the patients, not to scare them, mm. but to educate them about nothing in life is 100%. You know? mm. There are risks in the procedure, there are risks in the vaccine. So we are telling them the risks and benefits because we want them to make an informed decision. So, and that, in fact, um, the, the patient or the public um, has to have some level of medical or some science literacy to process this information. Yeah, yeah so that's the thing. If you look at COVID um, as an example, since the start of the pandemic, we have been overloaded with information <laughs> nearly every day. Yes. But yeah. obviously, the more affluent, the more educated people have access to this information from internet, you know, from journals, etc. But a lot of scientific articles, journals, there's a skill to read them. Even though it's like, I'm a medical graduate, I can read scientific medical papers with no problem. But if you ask me to read, say, a finance journal, I'll probably be lost as well. Yeah. So because of this barrage of information, and obviously it is so yeah. important to know about COVID now because it is basically a life and death matter. Everybody tries to understand it, but understood it wrongly. So I think that's where the problem can arise. So, I mean, given that problem, mm. Yungkian, is the solution censorship? Like, how do we deal with this barrage of information? I definitely do not believe in censorship. I think data, evidence, and journals should be open access, so to say. But I think there should be better communications from the government. Mm. Overall, I think it's all about communication. In the sense, if you communicate well, if you actually go down to engage the community, uh, understand why they are concerned, things like that, you'll be able to address the concerns better and just blasting out press conferences, press releases, infographics. So those are quite superficial, you know. There still needs to be a lot of effort from the public to go and look for them, go and read them. Yeah. So I think communications is a big part. Government has a big part, but everybody has to play a part. Media has a very big part to play. Exactly. Obviously, doctors are also a big part of it to help drive home the message. Mm. Many people still can help to distribute the correct information, religious leaders, celebrities, influencers, etc. Anybody could help. But of course, there must be a centralized effort. So I believe that should be with the government as well. I just, I just want to get a bit more granular to understand the extent of this phenomenon in Malaysia. Like in the US, I think there was a statistic that found the number of people who found it important to get their children vaccinated fell by 10% between 2001 and 2019. And again, that's that same time frame where you talked about Andrew Wakefield's paper being allowed to circulate in the public. And so, Yunkan, to what extent are anti-vaxxers actually a problem in Malaysia? Like, just now you mentioned that sometimes it might be people who are victims of their circumstances rather than people who actually hold anti-vaxxer beliefs. 
And so have there been any studies to identify who these people are, where they're from, that sort of thing? I think to date, there's not much big-scale studies to identify this group of people. And also, it would be probably a bit hard because this will require a lot of surveys and interviews, etc. And not many people be willing to offer this information, especially, you know, in Malaysia. Mm. I think the, at the moment, most of the studies are concentrating on finding out why there are such people or there are such groups around. Right. So if we know the reasons why, probably we can tailor our approach better to address the concern. So when you say tailor our approach to dealing with this issue, how much is the onus of Macham tackling this problem up to individual doctors, Macham, each doctor who runs a GP clinic and then sees a patient one by one by one, how much of the responsibility is on them rather than a concerted effort by the government to roll out vaccine awareness at the point, data literacy, that sort of thing? Mm. I think instead of trying to see it as uh, either or, we shouldn't have a bigger part, we should just look at the responsibility of the government and also the community doctors as complementary. Mm. Mm. Obviously, the government has a wider reach, you know, so they can address bigger issues, policy, policy issues, uh, operational issues over COVID-19 vaccines and things like that. Yeah. Obviously, they cannot address everyone's issues separately or individually, so that would be down to your own doctors. So let's say the government say, okay, you know, everybody should get the vaccine. If you're above 18 and you have no allergy, you should go and get the vaccine. So maybe what if I have this particular disease, a particular condition? Yeah. So I know the first level of decision is yes, I should get the vaccine because it's good for me. Yeah. But I do have this medical condition, so who do I pick up? The next person I should meet is my own doctor to have a more personal assessment. Yeah. So I think it should be complementary rather than like either or kind of situation. Okay, so given that, I guess if I can bring the discussion to something more legal, more policy, and borderline moral philosophical. How does the medical community feel about mandatory vaccinations? Like if a government were to force its citizens to take a vaccine or whatever, are there like any pros and cons about it? Like how does it affect vaccine take-up rate? How does the medical community feel about these sort of things? I obviously cannot speak on behalf of all doctors in Malaysia. <laughs> yes. But personally... I don't believe in mandatory vaccination, especially now for COVID-19. Hmm. Several reasons to it, actually. The most obvious reason is because it's not very widely available right now. Right. You can just put out a policy that, okay, everybody must get vaccinated. If not, you can't, say, enter buildings. You can't go out of your house without a letter saying that you have been vaccinated. Right. Okay, you know, that seems like a good way to get everybody encouraged to, to get vaccinated. But if you look at the AstraZeneca rollout, on the first day, the website crashed. Many people couldn't get the appointment. After getting the appointments, there were no confirmation whether they did get the appointment. Right. And today you see people queuing up outside a center that's not open, even though they are asking that there is an appointment for them and things like that. So basically, the access is not there yet. Um, rural communities are not so easy to reach. I think there was a viral post on Twitter saying that a couple of Penan women traveled 100 kilometers to get the vaccine. Yeah. Does it make sense to make old people to travel 100km just to get vaccinated? That doesn't make sense. Right. Mm. So that is failure at a policy level. You can't just use another policy to correct another failure. Mm. Yeah. So before we can talk about mandatory vaccinations, obviously we can talk about access or availability. Because of it being inaccessible for many, it will obviously promote discrimination. Mm. So at the end of the day, who will get vaccinated? The ones that have easy medical access, yeah. the ones that obviously is richer or, or you know, higher income. Mm. So if we just 
push out a blanket law or blanket regulation, yeah. true, you might get an uptick in vaccination, but you will not get a equitable distribution of the vaccine. Well, okay, so I guess your objection here seems to be more practical rather than an objection based in principle. So for example, let's go beyond COVID vaccine. Let's talk about vaccines generally. I mean, most of us have this mark on our arm that shows we were BCG'd as kids. Aren't these effective ways to ensure vaccine take-up rates? Should parents be given the option to opt out? Are exemptions a bad thing when it comes to ensure vaccine take-up rates? What are your thoughts on vaccines generally, not just the COVID vaccination program? I mean, if we talk about children or babies, I think that there's a difference because First thing, you know, children can't give consent yet. Obviously, as babies, they can't give consent. So I think at the moment, actually, there is no mandatory vaccination at all in Malaysia. The parents still can opt out from getting their babies vaccinated, even BCG. So obviously, that is highly, highly discouraged. Obviously, there are pockets of people refusing it already. I think we should not impose mandatory vaccinations on parents, but we should find better ways to encourage them. If we want to say mandatory vaccination as a policy, I think it should be the last resort. Hmm. If let's say we have exhausted all forms of communication, all forms of encouragement, right. and we have really looked in all the reasons of vaccine denial, yeah. then we say, okay, we think that mandatory vaccination will help in every area. But if we still have some pockets of people, simply the reason being they can't get vaccinated because they can't bring their baby to a KK 100km away. It doesn't make sense to get them to put a mandatory vaccination in the first place anyway. Yeah. It wouldn't work anyway. Right. So, okay, I guess wanting to bring things to a wrap. So we've talked about the phenomenon of anti-vaxxers and how they're actually on a spectrum of people who have different levels of varying hesitancies towards vaccines. We've talked about how they started, how they've grown, and what the extent of the problem is today. And we've also talked about best strategies, best practices in dealing with them. Yung Kian, mm-hmm. how do you see things going forward from here? Do you personally, just from your time being a healthcare practitioner, do you foresee things getting better? Do you foresee some challenges up ahead that we might not be aware of today? Like, what's going on? Yeah. What's the inside scoop? <laughs> <laughs> I do miss that place, uh, the ice cream there. But anyway. <laughs> Wait, serious. I miss inside scoop so much, man. Like, that's such a triggering word. Like, setiap cempedak season. Mm, dah lah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really nice, you guys. Babi <laughs> This episode was sponsored yeah. by Inside Scoop. <laughs> that would be an amazing yeah. vaccine campaign. Like, get your vaccine, get a free scoop of Inside Scoop. I'm pretty sure everyone will sign up. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think they did that in Russia or something like that. What? I know yeah. for a fact that US Krispy Kreme macam <laughs> if you show your vaccine card, you're eligible to get one free glazed donut every day. <laughs> for the next year. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. It's like, get your vaccine, but still maintain obesity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Sorry, doctor, yeah. we were asking you earlier about like the future and stuff. So, yeah. sorry, going back to the question about <laughs> how do you foresee things going from here with regards to the 
phenomenon of anti-vaxxers or just generally people with vaccine-hesitant attitudes? Uh, I think it will be a problem. I mean, it is a problem now already. So if we do not think about how to address this group of people, but on the whole, I think I will be quite optimistic about the whole thing. There's also greater awareness. If you talk about rising anti-vaccine sentiments, there's also greater awareness on people to get to get the vaccine. I mean, we can obviously see although just on social media, but people taking up the action to the vaccine is a very big thing, you know, that hashtag going on. Yeah. People posting their experiences, you know, that these are all very organic awareness and they will grow. And of course, on a wider scale, on a global scale, we see that development of vaccines can be expedited. You know, there are red tips that we can cut through. There are a lot of bureaucracy that we can cut through to get vaccines across the world. Mm. Um, COVAX is one method of doing it. Recently, US has agreed to waive intellectual property rights on the vaccine. So overall, I think there is also greater awareness on how vaccines work, how effective are they. Mm. And the evidence coming out from Pfizer, from Moderna, etc. So many other vaccines developed right now. So these are all positive development that we can use in the future to counter or to address the, the concerns of vaccine hesitancy. Perfect. I guess, Yongkian, mm. just to finish things off, you write quite often. I've seen your articles on Malay Mail. You give interviews on BFM and Astro One and stuff. I don't know, do you want to plug your writings or is there a PSA that you want to <laughs> throw out to our listeners? Or NDA. No. Don't sue me. <laughs> That's the most important. <laughs> I have no money whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, Inside Scoot sponsor. <laughs> I guess in keeping with the topic of the podcast, get, your, get yourself vaccinated. Yes. The vaccine is actually a scientific breakthrough, I think, to be able to get something in the market, in the public, in someone's arm within a year. It's basically a scientific mm. miracle. Yeah. The amazing thing, I think, is that everybody pitched in to get it out. Obviously, there are still a lot of more work to do to get it to different communities. I think if we are given the chance, if we are given the option to take it, we are basically already privileged. Yeah. If you do not want to protect yourself, at least protect the people around you. So just get your shot, everyone. Exactly. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Doctor. We had okay. such a good time having you with us today. Yeah, thank you for your no insights. Problem. Oh, I don't know. Doctor, can we actually get you to say Islam Al-Rayyan real quick? Mengambil kesempatan. No problem. Yes. Islam Al-Rayyan, stay home. Maaf dahi dan batin in case I accidentally offended anyone on this podcast. Okay, maafkan. Thank you, Doc. Alright, no problem, guys. Thank you for listening to the He Says, She Says, They Say podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear on the show, email us at inbox at hesheytheysay.com or drop us a DM on Twitter at hesheytheysay underscore. We cannot thank our listeners enough for their genuine support that they have given us on this journey, and we have enjoyed making this podcast for all of you. Now, if you have really enjoyed our show so far please feel free to donate us a cup of coffee on buymeacoffee.com slash he she they say so we can create more quality content for you and so Iqbal can afford to make more quality content on his twitter for all of you so buy us a coffee you guys at buymeacoffee.com slash he she they say till next time bye